0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host, as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich.
2: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. When Abraham Lincoln died in April 1865, everything stopped as everyone in the nation mourned, North and South realizing they had lost their leader or perhaps their best friend of the future. Well, actually, not everyone mourned, and not everything stopped. We'll find out what really happened in the wake of Abraham Lincoln's death and what it meant from Professor Martha Hodes, author of Mourning Lincoln, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: live the leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com.
0: now you can take your favorite voice america radio program with you anywhere sign up for our mobile app if you have an iphone android or blackberry the voice america interactive radio player powered by aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere live and on demand No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building back on campus at East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or the Brewster Building or the third floor, the history department, or anyone else, just myself, not for the UNC system, not anybody. And likewise, our guest will do the same as we always do here. It is a beautiful evening in April of 2016. It is 151 years since the assassination of Abraham Lincoln at. Uh, did I say April? It's only March. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, it's still March of 2016. It feels like April. It's balmy outside. Uh, perhaps yearning for the end of the semester has begun already. Now that we are past spring break, it's all a steep downhill slide from here. Uh, But uh, rather than talk about academic uh, uh, trivia, as as so often uh, I I do for a minute or so at the beginning of the hour, I would just point out uh, that it is the time in the the seven or eight year cycle of life when I feel I must have a new computer, Uh, whether one is actually needed or not. it's just one of those things. I look at the the model sitting on my desk. It's, a, I think, a Fisher-Price 1000 and has uh, very limited specifications. And I read about all the new ones, The and it just seems it's time to get a new computer. It's, it's time to get one that can do all kinds of fabulous things and play Grand Theft Auto V or other games like that. I have no idea what that actually is. I don't have... A game playing device. I've never played one of those, but it just sounds like that's what, that's what all the young folks are doing today. So I ought to get one for myself. Um, then I look at my, whatever it is, seven or eight or nine-year-old machine and realize I can still do everything I need from this show to word processing to keeping a grade spreadsheet. And I really don't need a new computer it's just one of those things that a person wants now and then. And it would cost a lot less than a sports car. So maybe maybe I'll go ahead and do that. Uh, that, in fact, can be the consoling thought if you decide to donate to the show here at, uh, by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where we keep track of who's going to be on the show next and where you can donate by clicking the PayPal button. There's an opportunity to Uh, send me so much cash that I feel I must use it all to buy a new computer. That's not likely to happen, I recognize. Uh, More likely, I'll continue to get the very welcome and generous donations many of you have sent in and use them to buy the books that I read for the show, Uh, but that computer will just linger in the background It's a possibility. Well, everyone else in my life is tired of hearing me talk about the new computer dream, and I would welcome you to that club, too. So I'll stop chatting about that and say that uh, the show continues next week with a rare venture into historical fiction. Next week's guest will be Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman. Uh, Her novel, Broken Promises, subtitled A Novel of the Civil War, will be our discussion topic. It focuses on American foreign policy and relations with England during the war Perhaps that's not, well, I don't want to say anything about why it was or was not a New York Times bestseller. Uh, It did receive uh, 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 prizes for American historical fiction, so it is uh, good at what it does, but uh, it's not a topic that that non-Civil War fans are running out to get. We'll enjoy it, though. Uh, Then the following week, we have Fighting for General Lee, Confederate General Rufus Beringer in the North Carolina Cavalry Brigade. That's written by Sheridan R. Butch Baringer, who one guesses from the similarity of names is related to the general. We'll find out when we read that and talk with Butch Beringer on April 6th. Then on April 13th and 20th, it's possible we will not have live shows we are doing interviews on campus for the Wichard chair. We have an, uh, There's a, a professorship that rotates among various departments, and the history department gets it next year. So we are talking to people who will come and join us for one season to do some research, give some talks, teach some classes, and generally raise the tone of uh, activity here in the Brewster Building. And if that's the case, I may be out eating dinner with candidates on those two evenings. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that, whether we have that or not. Other things coming up uh, a month from that time, month and a half away uh, after that will be the This Hallowed Ground tour, Civil War Sites in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in that, look up Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours online, contact them, they'll get you set up and you can join and we will all go on a uh, always very interesting bus tour of these sites. It lasts a week, eight days maybe. See some really interesting places, travel in comfort, meet some interesting authorities along the way who will tell us more and I'll be there to Uh, participate in the the learning and teaching as we do each year. It's a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it. So that's what's coming up in the future. Uh, We'll stop with that and move on to the subject of tonight's show, uh, the book Morning Lincoln, morning as in... Uh, a Grieving for the Dead, Not the Time of Day. The author is Martha Hodes, who is a professor of history at New York University, and joins us here this evening. Professor Hodes, are you there? And Wait, there we go. Are you there? I am here. There you are. Yes, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be on your show.
2: Well, it is a pleasure to have you. I I've, I've very much enjoyed reading this book. Uh, I don't think you and I have crossed paths anywhere on the, the Civil War or history trail up to now, so uh, could I ask uh, a little bit about your, your, share your background with our listeners, where, uh, tell us about your day job at uh, NYU and, and how you got there.
3: Sure thing. Uh, well, I am a professor of history at New York University, and I teach 19th century United States the Civil War is one of the main topics I teach to both undergraduates and graduates, and I do that in lecture courses and in seminars. Um, but I also teach method courses. I teach courses about writing history. I teach courses about the 19th century in general. Of course, I tend to emphasize the Civil War in the 19th century because I do think it's the most critical aspect of American history. Um, mm-hmm. I have a little bit of a, uh, an unusual trajectory in that I was a religion major in college, And and then I went on to get a master's degree in theological studies at Harvard, but while I was doing that, I was uh, a work-study student. I had a work-study job at uh, Radcliffe's Women's History Library, and that job is what made the switch for me. I decided that I was, I should say, I found myself more interested in people's daily experiences in people's lives, rather than reading about the abstractions of ideas, of religious ideas, Um, because I've been studying comparative religion, both East and West. And so that that made me make the turn to history. And then I went and got a PhD at Princeton in American history, and I was fortunate to study with the eminent James McPherson. And that, of course, had an enormous effect on me. He is such an eminent Civil War scholar, and he's such a wonderful teacher and mentor, And uh, although my past books haven't been directly about the Civil War, they all encompass the Civil War, and the Civil War is a turning point in all of those books. And then in this book, which is my third, uh, it is directly about the Civil War, and I was very happy to be working on such a project.
2: Well, that is uh, certainly a great topic, and and, uh, James McPherson is, is one of the leading Figures and and a great guy. Uh, I've I've had the opportunity to work with him on a few things, and he really is a, a wonderful uh, person as well as a great scholar. So you uh, you studied at Harvard, and I read the acknowledgments in your book. Often, uh, you know, we often go first to the acknowledgments to figure out who's this person connected to, who do I know, and there uh, I find you spent a year at the Warren Center uh, on the Harvard campus working on this. And it just sounded like a really great time, the way you described it. Uh, Oh,
3: it was so wonderful. I think I used the word paradise in my (laughs) acknowledgments. And it was true. And I should also say, and this is also in the acknowledgments, that at the same time that I had this wonderful fellowship at the Warren Center, I was also an NEH fellow at the Massachusetts Historical Society. So I held those fellowships concurrently. And so I had two absolutely wonderful communities of scholars and Interested people, um, the Mass Historical Society has lots of wonderful public programs, people who care about history um, and the theme of the Warren Center Fellowship that year every year there's a theme, and they bring together okay. scholars working on that theme. The theme that year was everyday life, and that was such a perfect theme for working on Morning Lincoln because, as you know, and we can talk about later if you'd like, Mm -hmm. I cared very much also about the way Morning Lincoln intersected with people's daily lives. So the year at Harvard was a year of writing, a year of organizing my research, a year of figuring out how to tell the story because I wanted to tell a story, and I could not have had better colleagues and friends and professors and students and people who were just interested and wanted to talk about writing and stories and history. And there's really nothing like having all that time to have those conversations.
2: That, that I'm, I'm deeply envious. Uh, I, I As listeners to the show know, I'm about to mention that I have a degree from Harvard because I do that every week if possible to try to amortize the cost of it over the last 30 years and, and, and get something back from it. Uh, so having done that, uh, I recall very fondly my time there uh, as a graduate student, mm. but now working in the uh, public sector at a state regional university with no sabbatical system, uh, mm. uh, it does sound like paradise to have that kind of time to read and write. Uh but the, the good news is it produces a book for all of us to read, so there's there's benefit all around there. One of the things that, that grabbed me reading this is your your opening discussion of how uh, how you came to the topic by comparing it to events in our lifetimes that we all remember, uh, traumatic public events that, that everyone remembers. And you mentioned 9-11 and the... Uh, Assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, I I was also five years old in 1963. Oh, uh, we're the, the same, same age, age. exactly. Uh, so that really resonated with me. I I remember my it, it. I tell my students that's my first public memory, first memory of something other than my own family, the first public event I I knew anything about. Uh, and so so yes, it's very striking uh, that that then was your your. Was that the trigger to this, uh, to this project of writing about Lincoln's assassination?
3: Yes, I think in many ways it was, but I didn't realize that right away. So mm-hmm. I had always, in my lectures on the Civil War, talked about the assassination. Of course I had. Um, mm-hmm. I'd always had a few sentences about it, I always knew it was significant. And then 9 11 happened. I was in New York. It was the first day of the fall semester at New York University. The first plane hit before I left for class that day, and then I went downstairs in my apartment building. I was living in Greenwich Village at that time. And before my eyes, the second plane came from from the other side. So I didn't see the plane, but I saw the the second tower burst into an orange ball of fire. There were people all with our necks craned looking up. And this is what is so striking to me looking back. I continued on to class and the students came in and sat in their chairs and we went over the syllabus. And then it wasn't until somebody opened the classroom door and said the towers have fallen down that I said, okay, class dismissed. And then I realized that we must all have been in a state of shock. Otherwise, why would we have come to class that day and begun to go over the syllabus? And none of the students objected. And later... That week, or maybe the next day, I sent them all an email saying, I realize now what a strange thing that was to do, and I'm sorry that I began class, but clearly we were not able to absorb what was happening because nothing like that had ever happened before, and by the same token, Lincoln was the first American president to be assassinated, So that event was very meaningful to me, and when I was writing Morning Lincoln, I thought quite a bit about 9-11. Of course, they're very different events historically, but but I'm talking about just the reaction and the response. And then, of course, you have a similar experience, how interesting that you were the same age, so we're exactly Mm -hmm. the same generation. Also one of my very first memories, and also, I should say, Martin Luther King's assassination as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. But, you know, just just a bit too young to remember a lot about it, but just old enough to to have to have enough of a memory of a day of watching grown-ups respond in ways that were, were confusing and sad and shocking. And I since went back and spoke to my parents and my sister, who's a little bit older, and uh, just wanted to know what they had remembered. But one of the things that struck me, and you mentioned this at the outset of the show, When I talked to my parents about Kennedy's assassination, the same kind of thing struck me as about Lincoln, which is that the world did not stop. It felt like it had, but my father's memory was so interesting. His memory was that he was at a Ford dealership buying a part for his car, and the news came over the radio, and the guy behind the counter brought the radio out so everybody could hear what had happened, but my father completed his purchase, and everybody else completed their purchases. My father went and taught a class. He was a teacher. And then he came home and then, of course, began to deal with it. But in the same way that I found with Lincoln's Mourners, the daily trivia of life went on for at least a while. And that was very interesting to me.
2: Well, it's a fascinating thought that, that the world literally can't stop in these circumstances and, and doesn't. Uh, what we'll do now is take a short break Uh some messages will play. We'll come back and talk more with our guest Martha Hodes, author of Morning Lincoln, uh, about the aftermath of the Lincoln assassination. We'll do that in just a few minutes. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
4: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast.
1: All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich at ECU dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Martha Hodes, author of Morning Lincoln. We've been talking uh, at the end of our first segment about the immediate reaction to Abraham Lincoln's death uh, as was true in tragedies in the 20th and 21st centuries, presidential assassinations or the uh, the attack on the towers in 2001. Uh, As much as it freezes that moment in our collective memory, it doesn't actually freeze the world. Time, life goes on. Uh, that certainly seems is, is one of the themes running through this book, uh, Martha, the idea that uh, that things keep happening uh, that that there is not a an end to everyday life uh, how did how did you document that for this book?
3: Well, the first thing I should say is that um everyday life did persist, it did go on, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, mm-hmm. but it's also important to understand that people describe themselves as being in a state of shock, and they really did feel that way. So, they used words like astounded and stupefied. They used uh, a phrase that I found quite often was a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky, so something impossible. People felt like they were in a dream or a nightmare. So there was a sense of shock. But what was so interesting to me and what I did to write the book was I read many, many diaries and letters from the time, from the moment of the assassination. And that's how I documented the persistence of everyday life. And what I found was that women had to continue with their housework. If you're a servant, you had to continue with your job. Men who were farmers had to continue with their work in the field. They couldn't let that slide. Men who were merchants or businessmen had to continue with their business deals, if possible. Sometimes in their letters they lamented that, uh, that their business deals were not going through because of the assassination, even as they were also mourning for Lincoln. If women had children to care for, they certainly had to take care of their children. They couldn't stop doing that. So what I found that was so interesting was in the letters and in diaries, people intertwined these responses of shock and then in between those sentences they might impart some news. So let's say uh, a woman was writing to her husband who was a soldier in the Union Army and she was on a farm and she was taking care of things while he was gone. Well, she had to tell him what was going on on the farm. She couldn't waste the pen and the ink and the paper and not say that just because she felt that she was in shock over the assassination. So she would skip from one topic to the next, going back and forth, and that really showed me how much everyday life was intertwined with the assassination.
2: So, that, you know, Abraham Lincoln was murdered, this is the great crisis, by the way, the, the, we need rain in the, the fields, exactly. or uh, uh, th- that there's, there's really no choice to doing that. And, and I guess one of the things that marks a, a book that's really interesting is as you read it, you go, oh, well, of course, that makes complete sense. Uh, but no one's really focused on that before. Uh, the other yeah. main theme that, that, that runs through this uh, that I saw was the the point that not only does the world not stop, but not everyone shares the universal, supposedly universal mourning. And this, this has a lot of dimensions, but... Uh, if, if one of the obvious ones would be the the uh, the southern the the white Southern response uh, typically people in the north would say well they they mourned also because they they thought Lincoln would be kind to them now they've lost him that's not what you found, at least not universally
3: Yes, that's right, and it's such an interesting topic because it's it's really quite complex, so what was so fascinating to me was that The the northerners, black and white northerners who were grieving for Lincoln, wrote in their diaries the the kinds of statements like, everyone, everywhere, everywhere in the whole nation, the whole world is in grief. Everyone is mourning. It was a kind of imagined universality. And yet they knew, they were well aware, because sometimes in the same entries or letters they would write about confederates or maybe copperheads in their midst. They knew that wasn't true. So in a way, it was the feeling, the shock seemed so overwhelming, and everything around them was draped in morning black, whole villages, whole towns, churches, schools, buildings, homes, so it seemed that way. But in fact, white Southerners didn't share that grief. In fact, white Southerners were quite preoccupied with their own grief at that very moment. Lincoln was assassinated less than a week after Lee's surrender on April 9th, and they had stepped into their own long grief of defeat, surrender, and were terribly, terribly sad and depressed and anxious about this. And so two things happened. One was that Confederates didn't always record or even seem to notice the assassination in the same way that Northerners, black and white, or black Southerners did. But the other is that when they did notice it, they often expressed a certain amount of glee. And that's what I found so fascinating. It was a reprieve from their defeat. It was a reprieve from this terrible sense that slavery was over and the war had seemed to be in vain. And so Confederates both rejoiced in private and even to some extent in public. And some of my evidence comes from Lincoln's mourners, say uh, Union-occupying forces in the city of Richmond, where Confederates would be cheering, laughing, clapping, maybe taunting African-Americans. So really a clear sense of a gleeful moment. And yet I have to respond to one other thing you said, which is that Mm -hmm. at the exact same time, Confederates also simultaneously had a sense that Lincoln was a friend. And this was really interesting because I thought when I started my research that I would find the trope of Lincoln as the best friend of the white South as Uh something that came later. You know, that's a birth of a nation placard in that movie that Lincoln was the South's best friend. I found that on the very day of Lincoln's death, Confederates really? were already calling him their best friend, even though they were also calling him an ape and a tyrant and a monster, and were celebrating his death. So it's, it was a complicated moment for white Southerners.
2: Can how how do you separate those strands? You know, were they being shrewd in uh, mourning or pretending to mourn, whereas they were secretly happy, or was this did you do you think this was literal? conflict, people unsure, uh, feeling both at the same time.
3: I do think people were feeling both at the same time, but you are correct that there were people who, for their own personal safety, white Southerners especially in Union-occupied areas, who did feign a certain kind of mourning by wearing black armbands, for example. But I do think the conflict was real. White Southerners despised Lincoln when he was elected. They continued to despise him throughout the war and they despised him at the end of the war, and they did think he was a tyrant and a monster. But at the end of the Civil War, white Southerners were very fearful for their future and the future of a world that had been destroyed, and they were afraid, and they didn't know what was going to happen. And in that political context, they thought of Lincoln as someone who would treat them better because they thought of Andrew Johnson as a poor white Southerner who hated slaveholders. Now, what the story turned out to be, and what Confederates soon found out, was that Andrew Johnson was not fond of the white Southern elite, but he hated black people more than he hated rich white Southerners. And so in the end, his policies benefited the Confederates. But at the moment of Lincoln's death, Confederates were quite worried that Lincoln's successor, President Andrew Johnson, would treat them much more harshly than they imagined Lincoln would treat them. So both of those things were true, the glee, the hatred for Lincoln, and the fear.
2: Now, then you've got another group that responds ambivalently to Lincoln's death uh, the Copperheads in the North, the anti war Democrats. Uh, it, right now, we're in an election year. Partisanship is as uh, uh, fierce and uncompromising as, as I can remember in my political lifetime. But it was certainly fierce and uncompromising during the Civil War. There are many Northerners who did not agree with Lincoln or his policies, and they were not all also swept up in the universal mourning. You, you find there are copperheads who are secretly rejoicing.
3: Yes, absolutely. And this was really interesting because when mourners talked about universal mourning, in a way they could separate out the Confederacy as this maybe maybe somebody, you know, they were people who had wanted to have a separate nation. So they weren't really part of the nation. They weren't really part of the union, even though they were now going to be brought back in. But Copperheads, that really confounded universal grief, because Copperheads were northerners. They were white northerners. And they they were misfits. They were somehow apart from the nation. And these were people who did not agree with Lincoln's policies. They did not think the Civil War should be about slavery. Some of them were immigrants. Some of them were northern businessmen. Many of them were women. And I was very interested to find some of them were Union soldiers, mostly who had been drafted, but some who had enlisted. And these were uh, were such amazing and interesting sources, because Union soldiers who cheered Lincoln's assassination could be brought up on charges of treason, wartime treason. And so when these soldiers expressed glee over the assassination, their comrades who are mourning Lincoln often brought them before a jury and before a trial, before a courtroom. And that's where you get these amazing descriptions of soldiers, again, laughing, clapping, taunting, cheering, Joking. So, for example, all this is written out in the court records. One soldier said, you know, now that Lincoln's been shot in the head, he has as much brains now as he ever had. And people were just incensed at that joke. And then sometimes these soldiers would go before the court and say, I really didn't mean it, I'm sorry. And, of course, most of them lost their cases and were dishonorably discharged and sometimes sentenced to prison terms.
2: The The one story that really stuck with me was the sailor who was – uh, reading the newspaper to the other sailors, and it, I guess this must have been a running joke among them. They said, "Read it Johnny fashion," in other words, uh, uh, act sad when the news is bad for the South, uh, weep and mourn when you're just reading about Lee's surrender, as, as a you know, it, it's a way of making fun of the Confederacy. And so he's reading the bad news or you know, the Confederate bad news and acting sad about it, and then he reads about Lincoln's assassination and acts happy about it and yes. what was a game suddenly becomes very problematic especially when he won't stop doing it
3: exactly because so, so it's the idea is he's reading it Johnny Reb fashion and they call it exactly. Johnny fashion and the, the soldiers around him say, and this is all documented in these court records oh, stop don't don't this isn't a joke stop, stop playing around they're, they're realizing this really happened this isn't funny right. but he won't stop and he is brought up on charges and considered a traitor
2: it, just a, a fascinating uh, bit there. One other group you mentioned briefly that did not uh, mourn Lincoln's death, uh, or at least did not feel the same way, are the the most radical of the Republicans who feared Lincoln would be too lenient. And um, as one of them said when Johnson came in, "We'll have no trouble with Johnson now." Uh, the,
3: yes, exactly. There's there's I mean, another
2: group. Yeah, talk about that if you would.
3: quite interested to find that some of the most radical Republicans, so one example would be Indiana Congressman George Julian, these are, these are men who had criticized Lincoln's moderation and leniency during the war, and although they in no way expressed a kind of taunting glee, of course they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. What they did express, and this is in some of their private correspondence, they expressed relief that Lincoln wouldn't be the man to lead the nation when the war was over because they, just like the white Southerners, like the former Confederates, they thought Lincoln would be too gentle with the white South and they thought Andrew Johnson uh, would, would actually treat the Confederates more harshly. Now, of course, again, they were completely wrong, but I found that quite fascinating. So, for example... Um, George Julian writes in his diary, the universal feeling among radical men here is that Lincoln's death is a godsend. Imagine that. And that was a political response. It wasn't an emotional response, and some mm-hmm. of the men were just as devastated as Lincoln's mourners. But politically, they felt it might be better for the nation.
2: And and uh, again, something they could express, uh, or at least hope to express among themselves very quietly without uh, without that being made public, that would be politically unsustainable, but there it was. Yeah. The, um, the responses besides, uh, the, the universal mourning, uh, that you describe include, uh, phases, uh, sort of the classic phases of mourning, although you don't characterize it that way necessarily, but there's an attempt to, to figure out what does God mean by this, to, to bargain, to rationalize, uh, why was Lincoln taken away? There's, uh, a desire for vengeance, a, a anger, retribution, uh, or later justice. And all all of these emotions you suggest are are again not universal, but are experienced in different ways depending whose side you're on.
3: Yes, absolutely. And i do I do want to make um, a point here that's very important about African Americans, uh, which are mm-hmm. which are those voices are very central to the book, although they were harder to find because there is not the same volume. Of letters and diaries, but I did find a lot of quite wonderful sources, um, and that's a very important part of the story. African Americans claimed a kind of special status um, in, Lincoln's, in Lincoln's death and in the effects of that death, and white mourners conceded that as bad as they were feeling, African Americans must have been feeling worse. Uh, they thought of Lincoln as a father, as a friend, those are words they often invoked, um, and they... They knew that the effects of this loss would be greatest on them. And it's interesting because African Americans were much, much quicker to realize that Andrew Johnson was not going to be their friend. And what they did... Soon after the assassination was invoke Lincoln at his most radical, and we can talk about that, but I want to address something else that you brought up that that i that I'm happy you brought up, which is which is the spiritual part. Part of this process of grieving was confronting the mysterious ways of God, and of course, in the nineteenth century, nearly everyone was a religious person and believed that many people believed that mainstream Protestantism believed that, you know, God worked in mysterious ways, but, but for the good of humankind. And now, people were absolutely stymied and dumbfounded. Why would God take Lincoln away at this moment? People really struggled with their faith. People poured into church on Sunday, April 16th. And here, it was Easter Sunday, and here these ministers had prepared sermons about the joy of union victory and had to rewrite their sermons without minimizing union victory, but, but somehow had to explain to their parishioners why they thought God had taken Lincoln away. And part of what they came up with, at least at the very moment, was that the mystery of God's plan made it somehow more meaningful, that there was something in the works that human, human beings couldn't understand. Um, and that was something that was satisfying to some mourners, but what was so interesting about reading diaries was to read diaries where people said, you know, I went to church and the minister said that this was God's plan, but I really can't figure out what's going on here. I found that really interesting, um, to see people's spiritual doubt. Now, eventually, people came to a political conclusion about God taking Lincoln away, and I can certainly talk about that, um, but, it was, but it was not obvious to people at all right away as soon as this happened.
2: Well, that, that is a fascinating uh, aspect of this. We're going to take another short break. We'll come right back, talk more with our guest tonight, Martha Hodes, author of Morning Lincoln. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Martha Hodes, author of Morning Lincoln. We've been talking about the national reaction to the death of Abraham Lincoln, the uh, moment when it seemed the whole world stopped, when it seemed everyone was mourning for the lost president, but in fact, the world went on. Things continued to happen on a daily basis, and not everyone shared the overwhelming public grief. Many, for reasons political or personal or otherwise, uh, felt differently, and uh, we ended up our last segment talking about the the spiritual aspect of this, the difficulty in reconciling uh, the existence of a just and loving deity with this mysterious uh, sudden assassination, the sudden uh, death of the person who had done so much for the country. And so, Martha, you suggested that people eventually politically reconciled themselves to this as there was little choice, but But it really was hard for people to understand what was God's plan in this. Is is that fair to say?
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think the way people reconciled it, and this really in a way pertains to Lincoln's most radical mourners, and in that group I include African Americans and their white allies, and they were the ones who really took it upon themselves to explain the meaning of the assassination in a way that would serve their own purposes in the world after the Civil War, in the visions they wanted to see come about. And so the way they did that was by understanding God's actions, that God took Lincoln as a way to alert the victors to the intransigence of the defeated Confederates. And so I found this in various, some in sermons, some in letters, uh, some expressed eloquently, some expressed um in ways that were not particularly literate, but that made the same point. The idea that without the assassination, Lincoln's radical mourners might not have insisted on the radical policies that were necessary. So the disenfranchisement, necessary in their view, the disenfranchisement of former Confederates, suffrage for black men. Um, One man called the assassination one more terrible lesson, meaning... Without the assassination, the Confederates might have won the war off the battlefield, even though they had lost the war on the battlefield. So the explanation these people gave to themselves and their loved ones and the Union in general was that the assassination made clear that Confederates were not subdued by defeat, or by the nation's first presidential assassination. And I will say that I found evidence in Confederate sources in which days after Lincoln's assassination, the day of Lincoln's funeral, um, as the funeral train was going across the country, white Southerners are writing to one another, family members and friends, and in their diaries, saying, the South will rise again. We will renew this nation. We will have a, what they called one woman, one 17-year-old woman, writing her, wrote in her diary, we will have a second war for independence. Those were her words. Now, of course, a second war for independence is what the Civil War had been for African-Americans, since they were not fully included in the Revolution in Revolutionary Principles of Equality. So, in many ways, it was quite right. The Confederates were not subdued by the war, by defeat, or by the assassination. And that was the message that Lincoln's radical mourners found. That's why God took Lincoln away.
2: Now, that ties in with your uh, selection of a pair of uh, protagonists who you return to in each chapter in this book, uh, which I thought was a very interesting technique because uh, a lot of monographs are written uh, where the author does research, certainly in Civil War monographs, you read hundreds or thousands of letters, diaries. Uh, you make your points about the the events, the campaigns, the battles, whatever it is. you you quote a soldier here, a soldier there, a wife at home here. Uh, and you can you know you can find stuff to support a lot of uh, theses in that fashion. But the reader never comes away knowing any of these people. Uh, you know the 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 major characters, the generals, the politicians. but even though the the so-called common person gets quoted a lot, they're just a random selection. In each chapter, it's different people, and you you got around that. You you follow through the uh, uh, Albert and Sarah Brown in the North and Rodney Dorman uh, in the South all the way through the book. So they keep showing up with their opinions. Tell me about that 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 style choice or that that how uh, how you came to that to decide yeah. to do it that way
3: thank you for bringing that up. So when I started writing Morning Lincoln, my idea was that I would find one family or one protagonist to follow through. And Mm -hmm. every archive I went to, I found so many sources, but I wasn't finding a protagonist I thought would take me through a whole book. And so I kept just recording, transcribing people's um, responses and I kept thinking, well this will just be backup information and this will this will work for whoever I'm following through the book. And then I found the Brown family papers, which happened to be at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. And then I found at the Library of Congress the diary, and you mentioned his name, this uh, white Southern named Rodney Dorman. And these were amazing sources. The Brown family were abolitionists from Salem, Massachusetts. They were a married couple in their 50s. They had children. And Albert was working in the South for the Union Army, and Sarah was in Massachusetts. That meant they wrote each other letters constantly, and Sarah kept a detailed diary. So here, suddenly, I had found this family that I could follow all the way through the spring and summer of 1865 and beyond and before that. And then the diary of Rodney Dorman was utterly fascinating. What a document. This man was a well-to-do lawyer in Jacksonville, Florida. He was in exile with the Union occupations of Jacksonville. His law office and home were burned by the Union Army, and he was living outside the city with other refugees, and he kept this monstrously detailed diary. He wrote so much, so uncensored. He was so infuriated by everything that had happened, so gleeful about Lincoln's assassination. And that's what, was, that's what suddenly struck me about these protagonists, that they were two ends of the spectrum. The Brown family were the, the abolitionists on one end, the New England abolitionists, and Rondi Dorman was the diehard Confederate on the other. And so that spectrum seemed to me such a good way to follow through this story, give it a human face, and show those the incredible opposition that was going on in the post-Civil War nation, the incredible lack of um, agreement, the lack of universality, was so well represented by these three protagonists, and that helped me carry through the story to each, to each chapter.
2: Now, Rodney Dorman's diary, uh, one interesting thing you point out, it wasn't listed as Rodney Dorman's diary when you found it.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. The, the Diary in Library of Congress is anonymous. There's no name anywhere on it. The papers are called the Orloff-Dorman Papers, but as I was reading through this and as I was researching Orloff-Dorman, I realized that Orloff-Dorman could not have written the diary. Orloff-Dorman was a Southern Unionist who visited Lincoln, who conferred with Lincoln, um, who clearly supported the Union, and there's no way the man who was writing this diary was Orloff Dorman. Orloff Dorman's a minor character who shows up here and there in different people's books. And so I went to the Library of Congress librarians, and I said, can I see the records for this collection? And I had to get special permission to do that. And by looking at those records, whoever had donated the collection we realized that the person who donated the diary said, you know, this belonged to an ancestor of mine, and his name was Orloff Dorman, but she was wrong. She had gotten it wrong, and so I, in other words, it was probably family lore, and because Orloff was the best-known Dorman, she assumed that's who it was. Rodney turned out to be his brother and no union supporter, and I traced him in all kinds of complicated ways by reading Southern newspapers, reading reports of the Union occupation in Jacksonville, reading Jacksonville newspapers, and I finally found a document in which a man had listed everything he had lost when his house had burned and his law office had burned in Jacksonville, Florida, and the handwriting of that inventory matched up perfectly with the diary in the Library of Congress. And now the Library of Congress librarians and archivists know who the diary belonged to, and they've inserted a note into the collection. But that was a fascinating journey for me.
2: Wow. Well, that that's one of those moments we, we don't get that many times when you exactly. when you're able to to complete the circle and say this is where this came from. This uh, and and it's not just a, a you know a, a trivia point, but it's, it's significant to the to the whole frame of this work here. Uh, Rodney Dorman, I will say, is. A thoroughly dislikable character. As I was reading the book, uh, you you talk about uh, Edmund Ruffin, the famous secessionist, committing suicide, and how some Southerners felt that was the only alternative left to them after the Confederate surrender. And uh, I, I should this would be too harsh to say that I I thought well you know Rodney Dorman should have hung out with Edmund Ruffin more, but. Uh, he, he really is is uh, so unrepentant and so vile in his attitude toward everyone he disagrees with, uh, toward uh, Yankees, toward African Americans, yes. uh, toward Abraham Lincoln. Uh, quite a character.
3: Yes, and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, on one hand, on the one hand, it's such an amazing source because it's so rich and it it illuminates so much. On the other hand, to be perfectly honest, it was hard to read a lot of it at a long stretch, because it was so vile in so many ways, and, and one of the things that I found very interesting, he always spelled Lincoln's name L-I-N-C-O-N. Now, this man was very educated. He wrote all about Greek and Roman history. He wrote about philosophy, so that was a purposeful misspelling, Lincoln. Lincoln was a con man. It was another way of putting Lincoln down. Interesting, but... The longer you read, especially um, the racist parts of his diary, which are very illuminating and important, but but hard to read after a while.
2: The uh, the Browns, I, I imagine, a part that would be hard to read for them is uh, you describe the loss, uh, the death of their twenty two year old daughter in eighteen sixty four, which then brings in your theme of of everyday life continuing. Uh, people are even as they're mourning Lincoln. Many Americans are mourning. Uh, family members they lost in the war, uh, or during the war, that that all these things keep happening, it, it it really brings home the fact that the world did not stop in April 1865.
3: Yes, and that's a really important theme, because people, mourners wrote about Lincoln's death as the ultimate death of the Civil War, which in a way it was, but they also called it the last death of the Civil War, and it wasn't that. Soldiers kept dying in hospitals, in camp, on the home front, even when they when they got home and died of diseases. And of course, People who weren't soldiers died all during the war. And so that was another way in which everyday life persisted, especially because the Civil War death toll was so high. 750,000 is the current number, 2% Mm -hmm. of the population. A comparable number today would be 7 million lives lost. So that's one way to comprehend how death was so persistent during the war, both on the home front and on the battlefront, and that was something the Browns contended with, with the death of their daughter um, uh, by disease, by sickness. She had a fever, and she died from it. And the way the Browns terribly lamented Lincoln, but found the death of their daughter utterly unbearable, which is one step beyond. And by the way, African Americans who experienced loss and death um, in, the, in the course of Lincoln's assassination similarly as much as they claimed special status for losing Lincoln, similarly suffered terribly. Even though African Americans had died in the war for freedom, that didn't necessarily make it easier to live with that loss for the rest of their lives. And that was an important finding for me.
2: Well, this book ties into all kinds of important uh, themes in American history. Uh, I know a lot of listeners have, have read Drew Faust's book, uh, *The Republic of Suffering*, uh, that, that looks at death generally in in the Civil wonderful. War era. Uh, there have been books on Lincoln's assassination and its meaning, going back to Thomas Turner comes to mind. Yes, uh, right. uh, the wonderful books on that. But this really ties these themes together in a, a, a an extremely readable package. I. It, it almost seems weird to say I enjoyed reading this because it is about this tragic event and the the, the sad reactions people had to it, uh, but it's a, a beautifully written book and I, I think listeners will enjoy, uh, will benefit from, from reading it and, and find it a, a worthwhile experience. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, in 30 seconds, uh, do you have a future Civil War-related project?
3: I have to say that Morning, Lincoln. Because it came out at the anniversary of the assassination, I'm still quite immersed in speaking engagements, uh, booked all the way through 2017. So I have not had time, but I am so looking forward to thinking of another Civil War project because, really, it's the era I love and the era I find so important and so meaningful in all of American history.
2: Well, I, I guess that is true of uh, I feel that way, and I'm sure much of our audience does too, or they wouldn't be listening, uh, and. To our listeners, I will say Martha Hodes' book, Morning Lincoln, will be worth your time. Highly recommended. Martha, thank you so much for being on the show this evening. Thank you, Jerry. I really appreciate your good work on Civil War Talk Radio. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.